This is the Pseudo-Conservative Revolt, read by Facts Farvum. The essay was written by Richard Hofstetter from the winter 1954 to 1955 issue of The Scholar. Now, before I begin, I should say that, having read through this already, I know that some things that Richard says are a bit outdated. Likewise, some other things he says would be common sense to folks from this era. Regarding the outdated things, I'll just chug along through them to give you the full experience. However, if there is something that I believe to be a bit oh, hard for a modern reader to understand that the average 1955 reader would have understood perfectly, I will make a note to pause and explain it for the reader. Without further ado, here's the essay. Twenty years ago, the dynamic force in American political life came from the side of liberal dissent. From the impulse to reform the iniquities of our economic and social system, and to change our ways of doing things to the end that the sufferings of the Great Depression would never be repeated. Today the dynamic force in our political life no longer comes from the liberals who made the New Deal possible. By 1952, the liberals had at least the trappings of power for 20 years. They could look back to a brief, exciting period in the mid-30s when they held power itself and had been able to transform the economic and administrative life of the nation. After 20 years, the New Deal liberals have quite unconsciously taken on the psychology of those who have entered into possession. Moreover, a large part of the New Deal public, the jobless, distracted, and bewildered men of 1933, have, in the course of the years, found substantial places in society for themselves, have become homeowners, suburbanites, and solid citizens. Many of them still keep the emotional commitments to the liberal descent with which they grew up politically, but their social position is one of solid comfort. Among them, the dominant tone has become one of satisfaction, even a kind of conservatism. Insofar as Adlai Stevenson... Hello, this is Fax Fivum, just to interrupt to say that Adlai Stevenson was the Democratic Party governor of Illinois, as well as the Democratic nominee for president in 1952 and 1956. He lost to Dwight Eisenhower in both elections. Back to your essay. Won their enthusiasm in 1952. It was not in spite of, but in part because of the air of poised and reliable conservatism that he brought to the Democratic Convention. By comparison, Harry Truman's impassioned rhetoric, with its occasional thrusts at Wall Street, seemed passé and rather embarrassing. The change did not escape Stevenson himself. <clears throat> the strange alchemy of our time, he said at a speech at Columbus, has somehow converted the Democrats into the truly conservative party of this country, the party dedicated to conserving all that is best and building solidly and safely on these foundations. The most that the old liberals can now envisage is not to carry on with some ambitious new program, but simply to defend as much as possible of the old achievements 
and try to keep traditional liberties of expression that are threatened. There is, however, a dynamic dissent in America today, representing no more than a modest fraction of the electorate. It is not so powerful as the liberal dissent of the New Deal era, but it is powerful enough to set the tone of our political life and to establish throughout the country a kind of punitive reaction. The new dissent is certainly not radical. There are hardly any radicals of any sort left, nor is it precisely conservative. Unlike most of the liberal dissent of the past, the new dissent not only has no respect for non-conformism, but is based on a relentless demand for conformity. It can more accurately be called pseudo-conservative, I borrowed the term from the study of the authoritarian personality published five years ago by Theodore W. Adorno and his associates, because its exponents, although they believe themselves to be conservatives and usually employ the rhetoric of conservatism, show signs of a serious and restless dissatisfaction with American life, traditions, and institutions. They have little in common with the temperate and compromising spirit of true conservatism in the classical sense of the word, and they are far from pleased with the dominant practical conservatism of the movement as it is represented by the Eisenhower administration. Their political reactions express rather a profound, if largely unconscious, hatred of our society and its ways, a hatred which one would hesitate to impute to them if one did not have suggestive clinical evidence. From clinical interviews and thematic apperception tests, Adorno and his co-workers found that pseudo-conservative subjects, although given to a form of political expression that combines a curious mixture of largely conservative with occasional radical notions, succeed in concealing from themselves the impulsive tendencies that, if released in action, would be very far from conservative. The pseudo-conservative, Adorno Wright shows, <clears throat> conventionality and authoritarian submissiveness in his conscious thinking, and <clears throat> violence, anarchic impulses, and chaotic destructiveness in the unconscious sphere. The pseudo-conservative is a man who, in the name of upholding traditional American values and institutions, and defending them against more or less fictitious dangers, consciously or unconsciously, aims at their abolition. Who is the pseudo-conservative, and what does he want? It is impossible to identify him by class, for the pseudo-conservative impulse can be found in practically all classes in society, although its power probably rests largely upon its appeal to the less educated members of the middle classes. The ideology of pseudo-conservatism can be characterized but not defined, because the pseudo-conservative tends to be more than ordinarily incoherent about politics. The lady who, when General Eisenhower's victory over Senator Taft had finally become official, stalked out of the Hilton Hotel, declaiming, This means eight more years of socialism. Facts, five from again. A bit of context about what he is describing here. The 1952 RNC was a bit hectic. You had the conservative wing of the Republican Party backing Senator Robert Taft, who, yes, was the son of the late President William Howard Taft, and the more moderate liberal wing backing Dwight Eisenhower. As we all know at this point, Dwight Eisenhower won. 
but this does not change the fact that it was a fraught convention and the lady referenced in this anecdote was clearly a supporter of Senator Taft. What is a bit less known is that Senator Taft died shortly after the convention, so he was never really around to actually oppose any of Eisenhower's policies. Back to your essay. Was probably a fairly good representative of the pseudo-conservative mentality. So also with a gentleman who, at the Freedom Congress held at Omaha over a year ago by some patriotic organizations, objected to Earl Warren's appointment to the Supreme Court with the assertion, <clears throat> middle-of-the-road thinking can and will destroy us. Or the general who spoke to the same group, demanding, <clears throat> an Air Force capable of wiping out the Russian Air Force and industry in one sweep, but also a material reduction in military expenditures. The people who a few years ago believed simultaneously that we had no business to be fighting communism in Korea, but that the war should immediately be extended to an Asia-wide crusade against communism, and the most ardent supporters of the Bricker Amendment. Facts five them again. The Bricker Amendment was a proposed amendment to the Constitution. Said amendment uh, appeared many different times with somewhat different wording. But the most famous one, and I'm reading directly from the Bricker Amendment's Wikipedia page, says it declared that no treaty could be made by the United States that conflicted with the Constitution. Uh, treaties could not be self-executing without the passage of separate enabling legislation through Congress. Treaties could not give Congress legislative powers beyond those specified in the Constitution. And it also says that it uh, limited the president's power to enter into executive agreements with foreign powers. Yes, so... The main deal with the Bricker Amendment was that uh, prior to World War II, America was a rather isolationist country. We had a tradition of demobilizing our military after war. However, after World War II, America became the major powerhouse of the world, well, the United States and the Soviet Union, so with two main superpowers. And the old isolationist wing of the conservative movement that spanned various aspects of the Republican and Democratic parties of the time did not really like the idea of America meddling in world affairs, even if it meant that America was getting a good deal out of it. So one of the main proposals was the Bricker Amendment in a failed attempt to make it more difficult for America to flex its foreign muscles, for lack of a better word. Back to your essay. Many of the most zealous followers of Senator McCarthy are also pseudo-conservatives, although there are, presumably, great, a great many others who are not. The restlessness, suspicion, and fear manifested in various phases of the pseudo-conservative revolt give evidence of the real suffering which the pseudo-conservative experiences in his capacity as a citizen. He believes himself to be living in a world in which he is spied upon, plotted against, betrayed, and very likely destined for total ruin. He feels that his liberties have been arbitrarily and outrageously invaded. He is opposed to almost everything that has happened in American politics for the past 20 years. He hates the very thought of Franklin D. Roosevelt. He is disturbed deeply by American participation in the United Nations, which he can only see as a sinister organization. He sees his country as being so weak that it is constantly about to fall victim to subversion and yet he feels that it is so all-powerful that any failure 
it may experience in getting its way in the world, for instance in the Orient, cannot possibly be due to its limitations, but must be attributed to its having been betrayed. He is the most bitter of all our citizens about our involvement in the wars of the past, but seems the least concerned about avoiding the next one. While he naturally does not like Soviet communism, what distinguishes him from the rest of us, who also dislike it, is that he shows little interest in, is often indeed bitterly hostile to such realistic measures, as might actually strengthen the United States vis-a-vis -vis Russia. He would much rather concern himself with the domestic scene, where communism is weak, than with those areas of the world where it is really strong and threatening. He wants to have nothing to do with the democratic nations of Western Europe, which seem to draw more of his ire than the Soviet communists. And he's opposed to all <clears throat> giveaway programs designed to aid and strengthen these nations. Indeed, he is likely to be antagonistic to most of the operations of our federal government, except congressional investigations, and to almost all of its expenditures. Not always, however, does he go so far as the Speaker of the Freedom Congress, who attributed the greater part of our national difficulties to <clears throat> this nasty, stinking 16th Amendment, with the 16th Amendment being the one that allows Congress to levy income tax. A great deal of pseudo-conservative thinking takes the form of trying to devise means of absolute protection against that betrayal by our own officialdom which the pseudo-conservative feels is always imminent. The Brooker Amendment indeed might be taken as one of the primary symptoms of pseudo-conservatism. Every dissenting movement brings its demand for constitutional changes, and the pseudo-conservative revolt, far from being an exception to this principle, seems to specialize in constitutional revision, at least as a speculative enterprise. The widespread latent hostility toward American institutions takes the form of, among other things, a flood of proposals to write drastic changes into the body of our or fundamental law. Last summer, in a characteristically astute piece, Richard Rovere pointed out that the Constitution amending had become almost a major diversion in the 83rd Congress. About a hundred amendments were introduced and referred to committee. Several of these called for the repeal of the income tax. Several embodied various formulas to limit non-military expenditures to some fixed portion of the national income. Others proposed to bar all federal expenditures on, quote, the general welfare, end quote. Another to prohibit American troops from serving in any foreign country except on the soil of a potential enemy. Another to redefine treason to embrace not only persons trying to overthrow the government, but also those trying to, quote, weaken, unquote even by peaceful means. The last proposal might bring the pseudo-conservative rebels themselves under the ban of treason, for the sum total of these amendments might easily serve to bring the whole structure of American society crashing to the ground. As Mr. Rivera puts it, it is not unusual for a large number of constitutional amendments to be flying about somewhere in the congressional hoppers. What is unusual is the readiness the Senate has shown to give them respectful consideration and the peculiar populistic arguments some of its leading members have used to justify referring them to the state legislatures. While the ordinary Congress hardly ever has occasion to consider more than one amendment, the 83rd Congress saw six constitutional amendments brought to the floor of the Senate, all summoning simple majorities and four winning the two-thirds majority necessary before they can be sent to the House and ultimately to the state legislatures. 
it must be added that, with the possible exception of the Brooker Amendment itself, none of the six amendments so honored can be classed with the most extreme proposals. But the pliability of the senators, the eagerness of some of them to pass the buck and defer to, quote, the people of the country, unquote, suggests how strong they feel the pressure to be for some kind of change that will give the expression to the vague desire to repudiate the past that underlies the pseudo-conservative revolt. One of the most urgent questions we can ask about the United States in our time is the question of where all this sentiment arose. The readiest answer is that the new pseudo-conservatism is simply the old ultra-conservatism and the old isolationism heightened by the extraordinary pressures of the contemporary world. This answer, though true as it may be, gives a deceptive sense of familiarity without much deepening or understanding. For the peculiar patterns of American social isolationism and extreme right-wing thinking have themselves not been very satisfactorily explored. It will not do to take but one example to say that some people want the income tax amendment repealed because taxes have become very heavy in the past 20 years, for this will not explain why. Of three people in the same tax bracket, one will grin and bear it and continue to support social welfare legislation, as well as an adequate defense, while another responds by supporting, in a matter-of-fact way, the practical conservative leadership of the moment, and the third finds us feeling satisfied only by the angry conspiratorial accusations and extreme demands of the pseudo-conservative. No doubt the circumstances determining the political style of any individual are complex, although I am concerned here to discuss some of the neglected social-psychological elements in pseudo-conservatism, I do not wish to appear to deny the presence of important economic and political causes. I am aware, for instance, that wealthy reactionaries try to use pseudo-conservative organizers, spokesmen, and groups to propagate their notions of public policy, and that some organizers of pseudo-conservatism and, quote, patriotic, unquote, groups often find in this work a means of making a living, thus turning a tendency towards paranoia into a vocational accent. Probably one of the most perverse forms of occupational therapy known to man. A number of other circumstances, the drastic inflation and heavy taxes of our time, the dissolution of American urban life, considerations of partisan political expediency also play a part. But none of these things seem to explain the broad appeal of pseudo-conservatism, its emotional intensity, its dense and massive irrationality, or some of the peculiar ideas it generates. Nor will they explain why those who profit by the organized movements find such a ready following among a large number of people, and why the rank-and-file janissaries of pseudo-conservatism are so eager to hurl accusations, write letters to congressmen and editors, and expend so much emotional energy and crusading idealism upon causes that plainly bring them no material reward. Elmer Davis, seeking to account for such sentiment in his recent book, But We Were Born Free, ventures a psychological hypothesis. He concludes, if I understand correctly, that the genuine difficulties of our situation in the face of the power of international communism have inspired a widespread feeling of fear and frustration and that those who cannot face these problems in a more rational way, quote, take it out on their less influential neighbors, in the mood of a man who, being afraid to stand up to his wife in a domestic argument, relieves his feelings by kicking the cat, end quote. This suggestion has the merit of both simplicity and plausibility, and it may begin to account for a portion of the pseudo-conservative public. 
But while we may dismiss our curiosity about the man who kicks the cat by remarking that some idiosyncrasy in his personal development has brought him to this pass, we can hardly help but wonder whether or not, in the backgrounds of the hundreds of thousands of persons who are moved by the pseudo-conservative impulse, some commonly shared circumstances that will help account for their all kicking the cat in unison. All of us have reason to fear the power of international communism, and all our lives are profoundly affected by it. Why do some Americans try to face this threat, for what is a problem that exists in a worldwide theater of action, while others try to reduce it largely to a matter of domestic conformity? Why do some of us prefer to look for allies in the democratic world, while others seem to prefer authoritarian allies or none at all? Why do pseudo-conservatives express such a persistent fear and suspicion of their own government, whether its leadership rests in the hands of Roosevelt, Truman, or Eisenhower? Why is the pseudo-conservative impelled to go beyond the more or less routine partisan argument that we have been the victims of considerable misgovernment during the past 20 years to the disquieting accusation that we have actually been the victims of persistent conspiracy and betrayal, quote, 20 years of treason, end quote. Is it not true, moreover, that political types very similar to the pseudo-conservative have had a long history in the United States, and that this history goes back to a time when the Soviet power did not loom nearly so large in our mental horizons? Was the Ku Klux Klan, for instance, which was responsibly estimated to have had a membership of four to four and a half million people at its peak in the 1920s, a phenomenon totally dissimilar to the pseudo-conservative revolt? What I wish to suggest, and I do so in the spirit of one setting forth nothing more than a speculative hypothesis, is that pseudo-conservatism is, in good part, a product of the rootlessness and heterogeneity of American life, and above all, of its peculiar scramble for status and its peculiar search for secure identity. Normally, there is a world of difference between one's sense of national identity or cultural belonging and one's social status. However, in American historical development, these two things, so easily distinguishable in analysis, have been jumbled together in reality, and it is precisely this that has given such a special poignancy and urgency to our status strivings. In this country, a person's status, that is, his relative place in the prestige hierarchy of his community, and his rudimentary sense of belonging to the community, that is what we call his quote-unquote Americanism, have been intimately joined, because, as a people extremely democratic in our social institutions, we have had no clear, consistent, and recognizable system of status. Our person's status problems have an unusual intensity, because we no longer have the relative ethnic homogeneity we had up to about 80 years ago. Our sense of belonging has long had it a high degree of uncertainty. We boast of the melting pot, but we are not quite sure what it is that will remain when we have been melted down. We have always been proud of the high degree of occupational mobility in our country, of the greater readiness, as compared with other countries, with which a person starting at a very humble place in our social structure could rise to a position of moderate wealth and status, and with which a person starting with a middling position could rise to great eminence. We have looked upon this as laudable in principle for its democratic and as pragmatically desirable, for it has served many a man as a stimulus to effort and has, no doubt, a great deal to do with the energetic and effectual tone of our economic life. The American pattern of occupational mobility, while often much exaggerated, as in the Horatio Alger stories, 
and a great deal of the rest of our mythology, may properly be credited with many of the virtues and beneficial effects that are usually attributed to it. But this occupational and social mobility, compounded by our extraordinary mobility from place to place, has also had its less frequently recognized drawbacks. Not the least of them is that this has become a country in which many people do not know who they are, or what they are, or what they belong to, or what belongs to them. It is a country of people whose status expectations are random and uncertain, and yet whose status aspirations have been whipped up to a high pitch by our democratic ethos and our rags-to-riches mythology. In a country where physical needs have been, by the scale of the world's living standards, on the whole well met, the luxury of questing after status has assumed an unusually prominent place in our civic consciousness. Political life is not simply an arena in which the conflicting interests of various social groups in concrete material gains are fought out. It is also an arena into which status aspirations and frustrations are, as the psychologists would say, projected. It is at this point that the issues of politics, or the pretend issues of politics, become interwoven with and dependent upon personal problems of individuals. We have all, at times, two kinds of processes going on in inextricable connection with each other. Interest politics, the clash of material aims and needs among various groups and blocks, and status politics, the clash of various projective rationalizations arising from status aspirations and other personal motives. In times of depression and economic discontent, and by and large in times of acute national emergency, politics is clearly a matter of interests, although of course status considerations are still present. In times of prosperity and general well-being on the material plane, however, status considerations among the masses can become much more influential in our politics. The two periods in our recent history in which status politics has been particularly prominent, the present era and the 1920s, have both been periods of prosperity. During depressions, the dominant motif in dissent takes expression in proposals for reform or in panaceas. Dissent then tends to be highly programmatic. That is, it gets itself embodied in many kinds of concrete legislative proposals. It is also future-oriented and forward-looking in the sense that it looks to a time when the adoption of this or that program will materially alleviate or eliminate certain discontents. In prosperity, however, when status politics becomes relatively more important, there is a tendency to embody discontent not so much in legislative proposals as in grousing. For the basic aspirations that underlie status discontent are only partially conscious. And, even insofar as they are conscious, it is difficult to give them a programmatic expression. It is more difficult for the old lady who belongs to the DAR, that is, the Daughters of the American Revolution, and who sees her ancestral home swamped by new working-class dwellings, to express her animus in concrete proposals of any degree of reality than it is, say, for the jobless worker during a slump to rally to a relief program. Therefore, it is the tendency of status politics to be expressed more in vindictiveness, in sour memories, in the search for scapegoats, than in for realistic proposals for positive action. Paradoxically, the intense status concerns of present-day politics are shared by two types of persons who arrive at them, in a sense, from opposite directions. The first are found among some types of old-family Anglo-Saxon Protestants, and the second are found among many types of immigrant families, most notably among the Germans and Irish, who are very frequently Catholic. 
The Anglo-Saxons are most disposed towards pseudo-conservatism when they are losing caste, the immigrants when they are gaining. Consider first the old family Americans. These people, whose stocks were once far more unequivocally dominant in America than they are today, feel that their ancestors made and settled and fought for this country. They have a certain inherited sense of proprietorship in it. Since America has always accorded a certain special deference to old families, so many of our families are new. These people have considerable claims to status by descent, which they celebrate by memberships in such organizations as the DAR and SAR, or Sons of the American Revolution. But large members of them are actually losing their other claims to status. For there are among them a considerable number of the shabby genteel, of those who, for one reason or another, have lost their old objective positions in the life of business and politics and the professions, and who therefore cling with exceptional desperation to such remnants of their prestige as they can muster from their ancestors. These people, although very often quite well-to-do, feel that they have been pushed out of their rightful place in American life, even out of their neighborhoods. Many of them have been traditional Republicans by family inheritance, and they have felt themselves edged aside by the immigrants, the trade unions, and the urban machines in the past 30 years. When the immigrants were weak, these native elements used to indulge themselves in ethnic and religious snobberies at their expense. Now the immigrant groups have developed ample means, political and economic, of self-defense, and the second and third generations have become considerably more capable of looking out for themselves. Some of the old family Americans have turned to find new objects of their resentment among liberals, left-wingers, intellectuals, and the like. For in the true pseudo-conservative fashion, they relish weak victims and shrink from asserting themselves against the strong. New family Americans have had their own peculiar status problem. From 1881 to 1900, over 8.8 .8 million immigrants came here. During the next 20 years, another 14.5 million. These immigrants, together with their descendants, constitute such a large portion of the population that Margaret Mead, in a stimulating analysis of our national character, has persuasively urged that the characteristic American outlook is now a third-generation point of view. In their search for new lives and new nationality, these immigrants have suffered much, and they have been rebuffed and made to feel inferior by the quote-unquote native stock, commonly being excluded from the better occupations and even from what is bitterly being called first-class citizenship. Insecurity over social status has thus been mixed with insecurity over one's very identity and a sense of belonging. Achieving a better type of job or a better social status and becoming, quote, more American, unquote, have become practically synonymous, and the passions that ordinarily attach to social position have been vastly heightened by being associated with the need to belong. The problems raised by the tasks of keeping the family together, disciplining children for the American race for success, trying to conform to unfamiliar standards, protecting economic and social status won at the cost of much sacrifice, holding the respect of children who grow American more rapidly than their parents, have thrown heavy burdens on the internal relationships of many new American families. Both new and old American families have been troubled by the changes of the past 30 years. The new because of their striving for middle-class respectability and American identity, the old because of their efforts to maintain an inherited social position and to realize under increasingly unfavorable social conditions imperatives of character and personal conduct deriving from the 19th century Yankee Protestant rural backgrounds. The relations between generations being cast in no stable mold have been disordered, and the status anxieties of parents have been inflicted upon children. 
Often parents entertain status aspirations that they are unable to gratify, or that they can gratify only at an exceptional psychic cost. Their children are expected to relieve their frustrations and redeem their lives. They become objects to be manipulated to that end. An extraordinarily high level of achievement is expected of them, and along with it, a tremendous effort to conform and be respectable. From the standpoint of the children, these expectations often appear in the form of an exorbitantly demanding authority that one dare not question or defy. Resistance and hostility, finding no moderate outlet in give and take, have to be suppressed, and reappear in the form of an internal destructive rage. An enormous hostility to authority, which cannot be admitted to consciousness, calls forth a massive overcompensation, which is manifest in the form of extravagant submissiveness or strong power. Among those found by Adorno and his colleagues to have strong ethnic prejudices and pseudo-conservative tendencies, there is a high proportion of persons who have been unable to develop the capacity to criticize justly and in moderation the failings of parents, and who are profoundly intolerant of the ambiguities of thought and feeling that one is so likely to find in real-life situations. For pseudo-conservatism is, among other things, a disorder in relation to authority, characterized by an inability to find other modes for human relationship than those, more or less, of complete domination or submission. The pseudo-conservative always imagines himself to be dominated and imposed upon because he feels that he is not dominant, and knows of no other way of interpreting his position. He imagines that his own government and his own leadership are engaged in a more or less continuous conspiracy against him because he has come to think of authority only as something that aims to manipulate and deprive him. It is for this reason, among others, that he enjoys seeing outstanding generals, distinguished secretaries of state, and prominent scholars browbeaten and humiliated. Status problems take on a special importance in American life because a very large part of the population suffers from one of the most troublesome of all status questions. Unable to enjoy the simple luxury of assuming their own nationality is a natural event, they are tormented by a nagging doubt as to whether they are really and truly and fully American. Since their forebearers voluntarily left one country and embraced another, they cannot, as people do elsewhere, think of nationality as something that comes with birth. For them it is a matter of choice and an object of striving. This is one reason why problems of loyalty arouse such an emotional response in many Americans, and why it is so hard in the American climate of opinion to make any clear distinction between the problem of national security and the question of personal loyalty. Of course, there is no real reason to doubt the loyalty to America of the immigrants and their descendants, or their willingness to serve the country as fully as if their ancestors had lived there for three centuries. Nonetheless, they have been thrown on the defensive by those who have, in the past, cast doubts upon the fullness of their Americanism. Possibly they are also, consciously or unconsciously, troubled by the thought that since their forebearers have already abandoned one country, one allegiance, their own national allegiance might be considered fickle. For this, I believe, there is some evidence in our national practices. What other country finds it so necessary to create institutional rituals for the sole purpose of guaranteeing to its people the genuineness of their nationality? Does the Frenchman or the Englishman or the Italian find it necessary to speak for himself as, quote, 100% English, French, or Italian? Do they find it necessary to have their equivalents of, quote, I am an American day when they disagree with one another over national policies? Do they find it necessary to call each other un-English, un-French, or un-Italian? No doubt they too are troubled by subversive activities and espionage. But are there countermeasures taken under the name of committees, such as the un-English, un-French, or un-Italian activities? 
The primary value of patriotic societies and anti-subversive ideologies to their exponents can be found here. They provide additional and continued reassurance both to those who are of old American ancestry and of other status grievances, and to those who are of recent American ancestry, and therefore feel in need of reassurance about their nationality. Veterans organizations offer the same satisfaction. What better evidence can there be of the genuineness of nationality and of earned citizenship than military service under the flag of one's country? Of course, such organizations, once they exist, are liable to exploitation by vested interests that can use them as pressure groups on behalf of their particular measures and interests. Veterans groups, since they lobby for the concrete interests of veterans, have a double role in this respect. But the cement that holds them together is the status motivation and the desire for identity. Sociological studies have shown that there is a close relation between social mobility and ethnic prejudice. Persons moving downward and even upward under many circumstances, in the social scale, tend to show greater prejudice against such ethnic minorities as the Jews and Negroes than commonly prevails in the social strata they have left or are entering. While the existing studies in this field have been focused upon prejudice rather than the kind of hyper-patriotism and hyper-conformism that I am most concerned with, I believe that the typical prejudiced person and the typical pseudo-conservative dissenter are usually the same person, that the mechanisms at work in both complexes are quite the same and that it is merely the expediencies and the strategy of the situation today that cause groups that once stressed racial discrimination to find other scapegoats, both the disciplined old American type and the new ethnic elements that are so eager for reassurance of their fundamental Americanism can conveniently converge upon liberals, critics, and nonconformists of various sorts, as well as communists and suspected communists. To proclaim themselves vigilant in the pursuit of those who are even so much as accused of disloyalty to the United States is a way of not only reasserting, but of advertising their own loyalty, and one of the chief characteristics of American superpatriotism is its constant inner urge towards self-advertisement. One notable quality in this new wave of conformism is that its advocates are much happier to have as their objects of hatred the Anglo-Saxon Eastern Ivy League intellectual gentlemen than they are with such bedraggled souls as, say, the Rosenbergs. Hello, Facts 5. I'm here just to say that the Rosenbergs, uh, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, were a Jewish-American couple who were convicted of spying on the U.S. on behalf of the Soviet Union. They were the first, and to my knowledge, uh, only case of someone being executed for treason in a time of peace. They were both executed. Back to our essay. The reason, I believe, is that in the minds of the status-driven, it is no special virtue to be more American than the Rosenbergs. But it is really something to be more American than Dean Atchison or John Foster Dulles or Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So for reference, Dean Atchison and John Foster Dulles were the uh, secretaries of state under Harry Truman and Dwight Eisenhower, respectively. Back to the essay. The status aspirations of some of the ethnic groups are actually higher than they were 20 years ago, which suggests one reason, and there are others, why in the ideology of the authoritarian right wing, Anti-Semitism and such blatant forms of prejudice have recently been soft-pedaled, 
Anti-Semitism, as it's said, is the poor man's snobbery. We Americans are always trying to raise the standard of living, and the same principle now seems to apply to standards of hating. So during the past 15 years or so, the authoritarians have moved on from anti-Negroism and anti-Semitism to anti-Achianism, anti-intellectualism, anti-nonconformism, and other variants of the same idea, much in the same way that the average American, if he can manage it, will move from a Ford to a Buick. Such status strivings may help us to understand some of the otherwise unintelligible figments of the pseudo-conservative ideology, the incredibly bitter feeling against the United Nations, for instance. Is it not understandable that such a feeling might be, paradoxically, shared at one and the same by an old Yankee Protestant American who feels that his social position is not what it ought to be, and that these foreigners are crowding on his country and diluting its sovereignty just as quote, foreigners, unquote, have crowded into his neighborhood, and by a second, third, or even fourth generation immigrant who has been trying hard to de-Europeanize himself, to get Europe out of his personal heritage, who finds his own government mocking him by its complicity in these old world schemes? Similarly, is it not status aspiration that in good part spurs the pseudo-conservative on towards his demand for conformity in a wide variety of spheres of life? Conformity is a way of guaranteeing and manifesting the respectability among those who are not sure that they are respectable enough. The nonconformity of others appears to such persons as a frivolous challenge to the whole order of things they are trying so hard to become a part of. Naturally, it is resented, and the demand for conformity in public becomes at once an expression of such resentment and a means of displaying one's own soundness. This habit has a tendency to spread itself from politics into intellectual and social spheres, where it can be made to challenge almost anyone whose pattern of life is different, and who is imagined to enjoy a superior social position. Notably, as one agitator put it, to the, quote, parlors of the sophisticated, the intellectuals, the so-called academic minds, end quote. Why has this tide of pseudo-conservative dissent risen to such heights in our time? To a considerable degree, we must remember it is a response, however unrealistic, to realities. We do live in a disordered world, threatened by a great and powerful ideology. It is a world of enormous potential violence that has already shown us the ugliest capacities of the human spirit. In our own country, there has indeed been espionage and laxity over security, and it has in fact allowed some spies to reach high places. There is just enough reality at most points along the line to give a touch of credibility to the melodramatics of the pseudo-conservative imagination. However, a number of developments in our recent history make this pseudo-conservative uprising more intelligible. For 200 years and more, various conditions of American development, the process of continental settlement, the continuous establishment in new areas of status patterns, the arrival of continuous waves of new immigrants, each pushing the preceding waves upward in the ethnic hierarchy, made it possible to satisfy a remarkably large part of the extravagant status aspirations that were aroused. There was a sort of automatic built-in status elevator in the American social edifice. Today that elevator no longer operates automatically, or at least it no longer operates in the same way. Secondly, the growth of the mass media of communication and their use in politics have brought politics closer to the people than ever before and have made politics a form of entertainment in which the spectators feel themselves involved. Thus it has become, more than ever before, an arena into which the private emotions and personal problems can be readily projected. Mass communications have aroused the mass man. Thirdly, the long tenure in power of the liberal elements to which the pseudo-conservatives are most opposed 
and the wide variety of changes that have been introduced into our social, economic, and administrative life have intensified the sense of powerlessness and victimization among the opponents of these changes and have widened the arena of social issues over which they feel discontent. There has been, among other things, the emergence of a wholly new struggle, the conflict between businessmen of certain types and the New Deal bureaucracy, which has spilled over into a resentment of intellectuals and experts. Finally, unlike our previous post-war periods, ours has been a period of continued crisis, from which the future promises no relief. In no foreign war of our history did we fight so long or make such sacrifices as in World War II. When it was over, instead of being able to resume our peacetime preoccupations, we were very promptly confronted with another war. It is hard for a certain type of American who does not think much about the world outside and does not want to have to do so to understand why we must become involved in such an unremitting struggle. It will be the fate of those in power for a long time to have to conduct the delicate diplomacy of the cold peace without the sympathy or understanding of a large part of their own people. From bitter experience, Eisenhower and Dulles are learning today what Truman and Atchison learned yesterday. These considerations suggest that the pseudo-conservative political style, while it may have already passed the peak of its influence, is one of the long waves of 20th century American history, and not a momentary mood. I do not share the widespread foreboding among liberals that this form of dissent will grow until it overwhelms our liberties altogether and plunges us into a totalitarian nightmare. Indeed, the idea that it is purely and simply fascist or totalitarian as we have known these things in recent European history is to my mind the false conception based upon the failure to read American developments in terms of our peculiar American constellation of political realities. It reminds me of the people who, because they found several close parallels between the NRA and Mussolini's corporate state, were once deeply troubled at the thought that the NRA was the beginning of American fascism. This is Facts 5 I'm again. The NRA was the National Recovery Administration, one of the first notable New Deal bureaucracies that Franklin Roosevelt set up. Now, similar to Mussolini's fascism, the NRA took on the idea that a strong central government needs to have a more active role in helping people in their day-to-day -day lives. The main difference is that Mussolini took it much, much, much farther than Roosevelt ever did, and the NRA was later deemed unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. Back to the essay. However, in a populistic culture like ours, which seems to lack a responsible elite with political and moral autonomy, and in which it is possible to exploit the wildest currents of public sentiment for private purposes, it is at least conceivable that a highly organized, vocal, active, and well-financed minority could create a political climate in which the rational pursuit of our well-being and safety would become impossible. This essay appeared in the book Paranoid Style in American Politics and Other Essays. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, feel free to share it around. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to let me know. I can be found on Twitter at capital F, capital F, then lowercase I-V-E-U-M. Or you can check me out on YouTube at Facts Fibum. Thank you once again for listening, and have a great day.